listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast, Episode 69, Princess Mononoke. Go away. Welcome to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, Don Bluth, Studio Ghibli, and everything in between. I am your host, Mason Smith. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. And I am here with Morgan Straddling, cool trainer extraordinaire. Hey. Well, fans, please excuse the amazing Chelsea Robson from this episode tonight. She is unavailable, but tonight we have a special guest who has never before appeared on the Animation Addicts podcast, and that is our very own Rotoscopers writer, Myra Maya. Hi, guys. Roto Writer, I believe, is our new ah, title. Yes. Roto Writer. Hiss, put that on her luggage. So, actually, you know how last week we were kind of, we were talking about our accomplishments that we had done in the past month, you and me, Mason, finishing school and, and whatnot, and Chelsea's like, yeah, just doing what I do. Well, yesterday, Chelsea got to go to the Country Music Awards. It's kind of a big deal. So, Chelsea... Put that on your list and check it off. Well, did she go, like, as an attendee or did she perform at it? As an attendee. That would oh, be well. ridiculously cool. Someday. Someday, right? Although she did, uh, Lindsay Sterling was a presenter, and Chelsea knows Lindsay, and so she texted her. And, and I also, well, I, <laughs> well I, I I talked to Lindsay, like, five times. <laughs> well, yeah. I was the ward executive secretary, so I, like, saw her in the hall a few times. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. Well, cool. What was Lindsay Sterling doing at the CMT Awards? Oh, well. Exactly. They sure are oh, branching well. out. Well, awesome. Well, so we will have to excuse Chelsea because she's on this amazing country crusade. Ah. Um, this is going to be like a, one of those Prince John quoting episodes. I just know it. Mm-hmm. Myra, I hope you're ready because this can be pretty intense with our Disney quotes. I'm ready for you guys to quote. I'm actually a terrible, terrible quoter. I worst memory ever uh um, long-term big ideas i capture and i have but quotes not so much awesome well we are definitely going to enjoy having you on the show because this film that we are reviewing today is a studio ghibli uh, miyasaki masterpiece that has a lot of big ideas and so you are just the person that we need on this episode myra i'm so excited mm-hmm. yeah, myra is our resident studio ghibli expert and fan extraordinaire so mm-hmm. we were when we were thinking about this episode, I'm like, perfect. This is the girl we need to have. So welcome. Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of fans, the fans were in like a positive uproar when I tweeted that we were doing this movie, um, uh, more so than any other like film that I announced on social media, at least on mine. And so our fans feel very passionately about this movie, and it's very popular. And as I'm sure you already know, we are doing the 1997 Studio Ghibli masterpiece, Princess Mononoke.
I remember seeing a preview for this on some Disney movie. It was a uh, it was a Disney movie, and then the, there was a preview for Princess Mononoke. And um, <laughs> if you ask me, they like, I can imagine the title. I don't remember what it was, but it, it probably said something like, you know, it's a story about a pig, a demon pig, and a boy who's infected by a demon. That's right. <laughs> it's like it's not a Disney film. It's a Disney distributed film. And the subject matter is so undisney at times that um, I kind of watching this movie recently to to gear up for the podcast. I was like, "Wow, are, do we really want to do this movie? Because it's it's very mature. I, I think it's probably the most mature, like content wise, uh, that we've reviewed so far. Mm-hmm. Just because of the violence, you know, in a you know." From from Studio Ghibli, partnering with Walt Disney Animation, it's a story about people's arms getting shot off. Yeah, this movie, I, I, I'd only seen it one time before, and so I forgot how, how violent it was, I guess. And so the very, very first scene is very uh, intense. And so when there was a literal arm being chopped off and all the flesh being shot, I was like, whoa, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Excellent, excellent. And we've got a ton of cool stories about the production and the distribution of this film. But parents, be warned, if you are listening, um, you you won't find anything that's not clean on this podcast. But just know that Princess Mononoke is not a film for young children. Heads will roll. People will lose their limbs. (laughs) There's blood and and ooze. There's a lot of ooze in this movie. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? All right, so let's take you guys back. It uh, re- original release date for Princess Mononoke was the 12th of July, 1997, and I'm always blown away by the release dates of these films that we review because I'm like, was it really 1997? Um, I first watched this in high school. I didn't get all the way through it, but I, I completed it recently uh, for this podcast. So just uh, to give you all an idea, other films from 1997 were Don Bluth's Anastasia, uh, also Hercules. Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas, <laughs> uh, Mighty Ducks the Movie, which was an animated film, Cats Don't Dance, uh, Pooh's Grand Adventure, uh, the most depressing animated movie ever made, and also The Swan Princess 2. This one, That one's for you, Morgan. And also The Land Before Time 5. So by the time um, this movie was made, there had already been five Land Before Time movies. <laughs> That's always a good, like milestone like benchmark for a movie oh by this time how many land before time movies were there <laughs> oh, they were still in the first the first dozen 93 percent on rotten tomatoes so certified fresh this is like a hugely successful japanese animated movie intended to be miyazaki's final film before retiring you know the the first of like five times he said he was going to retire that's a joke it did so well that it led him to make spirited away so for that i thank you Sensei Miyazaki, because without this film, we would not have Spirited Away, which a lot of people consider to be Miyazaki's magnus opus, or however the heck you say that. According to some facts I found on the web, this is a monumental film for many reasons. For Okay, for 1997, it was the second longest animated film ever made. It was also the last major animated motion picture to be filmed on plastic animation cells, uh, as opposed to digital cell you know, compositing and stuff. And as of 1997, it was the most expensive anime ever produced. How about that, folks? And um, the production of the film is 
is quite a tale. We have a lot of awesome information on the production of this film. Very interesting. Um, so in terms of the production of uh, Princess Mononoke, I actually ran to my local bookstore and purchased both parts of Miyazaki's biography, which um, pretty much go movie by movie that he's ever made and gives all of the material that surrounds that specific movie. Um, everything from a mock-up of the production notes that he gave as a proposal to uh, the studio so that they would give him permission to make the film, as well as like poems, um, interviews that he did uh, after the film was released in Japan, as well as in the U.S., well, he never came to the U.S., but interviews that he did uh, with like Ebert and uh, other critics. In the proposal, uh, specifically, he talks a lot about the battle between humans and ferocious gods. That's actually the first or the second section of, um, uh, and actually, ouch, I forgot to name the book. The first one is Starting Point, 1979-96. The second one is Turning Point, 1997-2008. Um, so we start off with Turning Point. And in it, he talks about the battle between humans and ferocious gods. He talks a lot about the historical context of Princess Mononoke. Um, he actually did set it in a very specific historical period in Japan, uh, which is called the Muromachi period, which was from 1336 to 1573. So it's, it's very specific to that era of Japan with Obviously, a lot of fantasy, as most Studio Ghibli films do incorporate so much fantasy. He does illustrate and say exactly what the purpose of him making this film was. He uh, is quoted in the book saying, I am not attempting to solve the entire world's problems. There can never be a happy ending in the battle between humanity and ferocious gods. Yet even amidst hatred and carnage, life is still worth living. It is possible for wondrous encounters and beautiful things to exist. I will depict animosity but that is in order to show the fact that there is something more precious and that's just a small little bit of flavor of what he said in in, in that section of the book and there are 200 pages dedicated to princess mononoke alone so it's it's quite a vast amount of information to process he also really wanted to explore the iron workers in this film because most of japanese period films actually depict either the samurai or the villager um, perspective. So there's only those two dichotomies that are explored in Japanese live-action films as well as anime. So he really wanted to look at the people who are often left in the peripheral uh, vision of Japanese historical films. Oh, he also, a lot of, he wanted to explore this idea uh, that he encountered while doing a lot of research for this specific film, that a lot of demons and spirits that have been passed down through the generations of Japan come from actual incidences or accidents that happen surrounding the area. For example, Princess Mononoke, she has those tattoos on her face because there was a legend pertaining to a girl who had burn marks on her face. So instead of making them more so burn marks, he made them tattoos a little bit more deliberate. Um, or for example, in J Japanese legends overall, there's also the tale of a young uh, Cyclops boy who like torments certain regions and that comes from an iron worker who probably got his eye poked out at some point cool so so really going into like not just the history but also the mythology uh you know the the kind of demonology or, or spirits of of uh japanese culture that's really cool i'm like really interested to read that those books because there's so many books about walt disney that people have read and written over the years and and different biographies of other 
major players in the film industry, but Miyazaki's huge and still around. So, I mean, that's really interesting. And, like, super dedication on your part from going out and buying the books. <laughs> I must bow down to you, Omira. Oh, thank you. Um, no, I have been looking for these books for like, like I've been looking at them for, for, for a couple of years now, and I'm just like, uh, I, I was looking for that opportunity to buy them, and I was like, you know what, this is perfect time, I'm just going to do it. And the weird thing is, and I, this is a little nitpicky thing, but one of them is hardcover, and that's Turning Point, that's the book that um, has Princess Mononoke, and the soft cover one is the first half, and it really bugged me, but it's because they're actually reprints, since they were both released in 2008, and it's been so long. Um, but it's just, it's such a nice collection of just all of this information that Honestly, I don't I don't even know that they've compiled anything like this for anyone like, you know, Walt Disney or any of the other major studios. Sure, you have the art books, which goes into, you know, the details of, uh, you know, how things were constructed and all that sort of thing. But this is like his actual words and ideas and what went into each and every single choice that he made for the film, which I, th I think it's just it's freaking awesome. I love I've only read I, I didn't even get through the entire chapter for um, Princess Mononoke, but I read like 130 pages in the last few days. <laughs> so great. Thanks for doing your homework. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, My pleasure. Okay, so, okay, so Miyazaki is passionate about his films, but it's obvious that he was really passionate about this film. I've been hearing so I've been gathering some information on the production. Apparently, he personally supervised over every single cell of the film. That's 144,000 total cells, folks. And he also ended up redrawing 80,000 of them. 80,000! So, uh. <laughs> I, get, I don't know, should you call it micromanaging when it works so well? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, if you're a type A personality, avoid working for Miyazaki in his studio because... Yeah, you're going to have someone hovering over you and nitpicking. And, you know, of course, it's the master, it's the legend, but might not go over too well. And, you know, in Japanese culture, I think having him be kind of a dominant personality over everyone, it seems like it would work. Yeah, totally. I, I can't even imagine working for the guy. Can't even imagine. Come on, use your imagination. Hmm. <laughs> Ow, it hurts. So, I mean, there's more folks. He, apparently, he even went so far as to create a whole new kanji character, like, like a Japanese uh, language character, to write his uh, preferred title for the film, which was The Legend of Ashitaka. It was very Legend of Zelda. Actually, this film has a lot of Zelda in it. So that would have been cool if... Uh, actually, I think it would have been less... Con it, people would have been less confused with The Legend of Ashitaka than Princess Mononoke. Interesting. That's my opinion, I think. I yeah. Well, I mean, they kind of explained that thing in the beginning. But, um, and actually, what's really nice about a lot of the work that Miyazaki did was he wrote poems for a lot of the main characters, like the forest spirit and uh, Yaku, the red elk. He wrote this poem specifically for Joe Hisaishi, who is his lifelong music composer, so that he could get better insight into what those characters' musical themes were going to be throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Can't even imagine. Can you imagine? Do directors have, like, this pill that they take that, like, lets them not sleep for, like, five years so they can, like, put so much work into stuff? Yeah. Well, he pretty much lived at the studio, and he neglects his family the whole time. So, you yeah, know, that's that's the pill. Neglect your family. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Let's talk some distributor drama. As you probably know, the film was distributed by Miramax, which is uh, related to Disney somehow. I don't I don't understand it. But they uh, Miramax ended up demanding that edits be made for the American theatrical release of the film, given the 
uh, violent content that was unbecoming of a movie with Disney's name attached to it, apparently. Now, a producer, Toshio Suzuki, sent Miramax a katana sword. A bloody katana sword. I'm just kidding. <laughs> with, a, with a note attached that, that read, no cuts. Thinking of Edna mode. No cuts. But um, Disney uh, slash Miramax, they ended up agreeing to uh, keep an unedited version of the film for the American theatrical release. But they only released the film in a handful of American theaters since they controlled the distribution. And then they expressed their surprise when the film didn't fare well, uh, fare very well in the box office, at least at first. Scandalous. But despite Disney's best efforts, the film ended up being the year's highest grossing film in Japan. And by 2001, it was the top selling anime in the U.S. following its VHS slash DVD release. So that's pretty cool because like it didn't do well at first, but it was kind of like a sleeper hit once it hit video. But, you know, in the end, I don't really blame Disney for making the request for an edited version. And I don't, I don't understand, like, was Miramax supposed to edit it or was that on Studio Ghibli's side? I don't know. And then doing some damage control when it when they ended up having to keep that promise because I mean it's, it is Disney they have an image to keep up but I am I am very glad that the American uh, dubbed version of the film is unedited as far as I can tell I don't know if there were any content edits made now those are the video that we see now is pretty much the video that they shot and did yeah. originally. Yeah. Which is nice. Also, just a little bit of trivia. You know what film finally toppled this film as number one in Japan? Uh, Ghost in the Shell. No. Mm, Final Fantasy. Nope. It's Final not anime. anime. It's nope. not anime? No, it's not anime. Well, that's no fun. I don't know. I Titanic? Know. It was Titanic. Oh, sweet. I win. Smith wins. <laughs> hey, good job. Me? <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> well, okay, that's very cool. So Titanic finally beat Princess Mononoke. But by just a smidge, right? I'm not sure on the numbers, but I, I, w- I would hope so, just a smidge. That the, that was a, a really weird cultural undertaking. I don't know. That was weird when that happened. Miyazaki said so himself. He was like, that was really strange. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing when you first hear this movie is look at the... You look at the cover, um, mm-hmm. and you, it gives you something very Japanese. A lot of times it's, um, you know kind of a, a warrior-ish holding a sword, or it's very, like, violent, and then you see the title Princess Mononoke. And as an American, that kind of, anytime you hear the word princess, it kind of puts a certain connotation in your head and an expectation. Um, maybe this is a fairy tale or whatever. And it is kind of like a mystical story, but it's not, if you're going in thinking you're getting a princess, a Japanese princess story, this is way different. Because it's not even that she's a princess. She's just, like, it's, if there's no kingdom involved or anything typical that you would expect. So um, I, I just would love to see what people's reactions are, you know, seeing just the title and the cover and then actually watching it. Like, whoa, what did I just get into? I'm not going to lie. Uh, when I used to see the title without seeing the movie, the cover without seeing the movie, I thought that Ashitaka's image on the box art was Princess Mononoke. Uh, um, I wasn't I wasn't too tripped up on the whole princess thing. I don't know what it is if I just like ignore titles all the time, or if I just ignore information people give me and I just sit there and try to take a lot of uh, the whole thing in. But I mean, considering the the idea that a lot of what Miyazaki was working with thematically in the film was a lot about legends mm-hmm. and like really big broad ideas, it kind of makes sense that 
you know, the Princess Mononoke was more so of a legend within the story that they were telling. Um, you know, later on, we do sort of put the pieces together that maybe it was uh, San, uh, who they were talking about in the legend, but it's not directly associated because it's it's part of the legend, which I, I, I appreciate the ambiguity. What? Well, I thought, that, I thought some characters referred to San as Princess Mononoke right before she attacks Irontown. I think they mentioned the name once in the film. Yeah, they mentioned it at the beginning yeah. when they explain that whole thing. I think she's more like, like I said, a little bit more of an allusion to to this legend. That's my guess. That's my take. Hmm. At any rate, the whole story of this film is very complex, and it makes for a very long film. Like they said, it was the second second long, longest anime as of 1997. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. This is one thing that, as I was watching it, I was like half hour into it, and I'm like, wow, we've been watching a lot of movie. A lot of stuff has happened. It's been very dense. Like, we must be over halfway done. And I'm like, whoa, we're just 30 minutes into it? We're only a quarter of the way done? Okay, let's go back. And so, you know, finish <laughs> watching the rest and, you know, an hour into it, I'm like, all right, this has to be wrapping up. And I'm like, what? We're only halfway done? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It just, like, never ended. And it wasn't, like, bad. Like, I was, like, anxious for it to get over. It just, like, so much was happening. And there were so many characters and situations and legends and mysticism. It just kind of, it's really intense. And don't watch this movie late at night laying down on the couch because you will fall asleep even though you are totally engaged. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just a lot to take in. Very strange, very strange. But it's a beautiful, very epic story. Just a comment on that. I felt the same way about The Wind Rises, but for different reasons. I was mm -hmm. just sitting there in the theater, and I was like, nothing is happening. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess that film just wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. Okay, we open with a very ominous, very dark prologue. Sludge Beast. Sludge oh boar thing. An exiled prince. A race against time. You know, there's all, Okay, speak, going back to Sludge, there is a lot of Fern Gully-ish sludge in this film. Uh, yeah, that's that's another thing that from the very beginning you're introduced to this very obscure, weird sludge thing, and you're not quite sure what it is, and there's these tentacles. It's one of those things, again, what have I gotten myself into? What is going on? And I kind of like that it's very jarring when you're first watching this, and you're like trying to hold on to anything to try and root yourself uh, to what's, what's happening in the story, but you know, you don't get that at the very beginning, and it really throws you in the moment. So I could totally ruin that mystery for you if you really wanted me to. Please ruin oh, please any ruin mystery. it. Ruin it. Um, so I, I guess the idea behind having the the wormed things coming out of the boar and and uh, all of the other uh, characters that it ended up taking over. Um, it's Miyazaki's personal experience and interpretation of rage. Ever since he was really young, whenever rage or serious deep felt anger would happen to him, that's literally how he would feel. He would feel like sort of he has this physical reaction where he feels worms and things crawling on his skin and bursting out. It's really graphic, really weird. And he, for the longest time, he actually thought that most people had this reaction to rage. And it was only once he started talking to the younger animators um, that he realized that that's in fact not true. <laughs> people don't react like this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the worm thing never really happened to me when I get angry. 
I mean, I think I felt, you know, I think it's a different interpretation of maybe goosebumps and maybe just more intense. I don't know. I've tried to wrap my brain around it. Uh, and, yeah, I can't. I, I don't think I've ever had this wormy feeling myself either. Very visual. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Well, there, okay, your explanation makes perfect sense because right after that, the village elders explain how the boar was consumed by rage and hate, having been wounded by this horrifying new technology. That the humans have. Yeah, so what I really like about Miyazaki's films and specifically is that he does take these really great themes and then explores them in a really nice visual sense. And he takes it on as a responsibility to make it the core theme of the film so that he could express it to children or to his audiences, which is really nice. And you see it multiple times throughout this film. Like you said, you know, the, uh, the villagers talk about it, that the boar has that, that rage inside of him. Ashitaka, that's what exactly what he's fighting the entire film, is his own anger at the curse that's been bestowed upon him. Yeah, totally. And, and the uh, dim-wittedness of those around him. Actually, it's just the stubbornness of everyone in the film except for him. Which, which brings us to Ashitaka. What a guy. He is the link of this film. Um, just heart of gold. Okay, I don't care if people hate me for this, but can someone please make a guide on how to tell if an anime character is a guy or a girl? <laughs> I really could not tell until Ashitaka spoke. Yeah. But the uh, Mulan-style dramatic hair... And I'm not the only one, and our listeners know it, but the, uh, the Mulan-style dramatic haircutting helped a lot for me. Ah, yes. <laughs> I, I loved that scene. I thought it was very real. You know, the customs of our clan, you have broken, you are a prince, we don't care, you must follow this ritual, cut off your hair, and we will never speak to you again, goodbye. Very harsh, you know, to the point, but they are strict in in their observance of their rules and their laws. I really liked that. I was, man, he accepted it. There wasn't anger or anything. It was just... I must go now. Yeah, I love the purity of his of his village in uh, juxtaposition to Iron Town, the samurai, and the forest creatures. It's it's uh, there's a lot of diversity as far as like uh, you know culture and attitude towards life in the film, which I really like. So Ashitaka goes on this epic quest to solve his curse, you know, because of trouble in the West. It's always the West that's to blame. <laughs> and um, he runs into our next main character, Jigo, the greediest monk ever. <laughs> and he's probably my favorite character, um, possibly tied with San or whatever, you know, Princess Mononoke or, or San. And he's voiced by Billy Bob Thornton. I was blown away. Oh, my gosh. Like, I was watching this with Jared, but he was not really paying attention. He was kind of, like, on his phone. and What? Jared always pays attention during <laughs> viewings. And then he just, like, perked up, and he's like, is that Billy Bob Thornton? And I'm like, let me double-check Google, IMDb. Yeah. Like, that's weird. I couldn't tell. I, I couldn't tell until I, I uh, IMDb'd him, and I was like, it is Billy Bob Thornton. I knew he sounded familiar. It's probably why I like him so much. <laughs> How okay. do you feel about that casting? Oh, dude. Okay, normally I don't like... I don't like a lot of casting for animes, but I thought Billy Bob Thornton was this, like, runaway hit. It was like a perfect... It was like a slam dunk home run for this film. Because, I don't know, I just... I just like his voice because it really fits like the swindler, fast talker, mercenary, ruthless, opportunist, and yet super cool, calm, and collected nature of this character. Like, Jigo never breaks his smile in the whole film. Like, he's almost never surprised, never upset, never disappointed. He just knows how to adapt to every situation for his own personal gain. And I know that's rotten, but that's why I like his character so much. He's like this weird, optimistic mercenary who's out to be, get rich 
and he doesn't care what he what he has to do to do it, you know? What's really weird, um, I, I enjoy his character a lot, too, and I particularly enjoy his shoes. Oh, his shoes are amazing! <laughs> they are amazing. They're, like, ten inches tall. I mean, that um, guy's calf muscles have got to be <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> um, but a lot of the, the animators would actually question me a second. Not only the animators, but actually a lot of the, um, during the press junkets and, and just in talking with critics, a lot of people would ask Miyazaki about this guy's motivations and who he worked for exactly. Because that whole thing is a little convoluted between him and um, uh, Lady Iboshi. Uh, who who exactly is the higher pyra there um, and who they're working for. And he actually ended up telling the animators to think of it in sort of the social structures within Studio Ghibli, where, like, you know, Miyazaki's there and he's giving the orders and the animators don't really know what direction ultimately he's going in and they just sort of have to trust him and just do his bidding for him. Um, so I thought I thought that was really funny. Ah, hey, so that's hey. how it works over there. <laughs> Hey, he's just a modest monk trying to get by. Exactly. <laughs> Lie. Um, yeah, I like him a lot, and um, I always like the the duo of the very talkative, like fast talker, and then the person who doesn't who's doesn't really want to talk. You know, yeah. so, mm-hmm. Ashitaka and, and Jigo. Uh, and then um, you know, a lot of characters kind of kind of swarm together in this kind of uh, you know mini battle with the wolf clan versus Lady Boshi and her iron people. Mm-hmm. And we get to the iconic moment of the film where Ashitaka first meets San. The iconic moment, people. All the posters are of this moment. And actually, the, I, I know that the American posters have uh, the yeah, image of San glaring at Ashitaka from across the river, only they censor it and they take off the blood on her face. But the Japanese poster has this amazing image of San glaring at the camera with blood all over her face. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's totally my favorite part of the film, and it, it's. I have a lot of qualms about you know animation stories overall, and I think that's evident in some of my past articles. Um, <laughs> By the way, if you have not checked out Myra's articles, you have to, because I'm going to include a link that just are any of her articles and her articles only, because she's very passionate. She's very polarizing. She doesn't kind of have the mainstream opinion, which is such a breath of fresh air. Um, she, she has written some of the most controversial posts on rotoscovers.com, yeah. as, as, as much as you can say on our website. But Yeah. <laughs> Although Gary, Gary just won me out. He just got an article with 145 hits on it, comments on it at the bottom, which I thought oh, was, yeah. like, was that totally the fro- out. Was that Tangled versus Frozen? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yep. yep, yep, yep. Actually, everyone was really respectful in the comments. Yeah, it was good. So definitely check out rotoscopers.com for all your great animation debates led by Myra and others. <laughs> yeah, and you'll actually see how polarizing I am at the end when we uh, uh, rate this movie, and everyone's going to be like, what? Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, mystery. Oh, oh wow. Stay to the end, everybody. <laughs> Something to look forward to, everybody. Stay to the end. <laughs> um, so cool. yeah, this moment is honestly probably the most impactful part for me of the entire film. Personally, I feel like when um, San, she's pulling out the poison out of the wolf's wound on the side, and, and she turns around, and, and it's almost like Ashitaka is witness to her naked essence. And, like, this is San, no if ands, or buts about it. It's not clouded. It's not, it's nothing. She's just standing there, and that is her. Unlike a lot of other stories that take this very romanticized version of falling in love at first sight. 
um, this is both gruesome and beautiful because it is real and it is honest and it is son. So that is why yeah. I love this part. I love their first interaction together. Hello, stranger. I'm coming to the... I want to know who the four spirit is. Go away. <laughs> so romantic. I love it. That used uh, to be my catchphrase in, in elementary school. I have, a really, I have a really sad story. So, like, I used it as sort of, like, just I had nothing better to say. I wanted to be kind of a little snarky brat. And so, like, I had this friend and these two guy friends, and they were super cool, and I really liked them. And we played Zelda together where we drew Triforces on our hands and pretended that we each had the different Triforces. Courage. Anyway, one day, one of these guys was kind of a troublemaker, and I kept, like, yelling at him, to, like, go away, just go away. And and one day he did go away. He got transferred to another school for bad behavior, and I always felt bad because <laughs> I, I told him to go away. <laughs> it wasn't you. He didn't. You didn't cause him to perform bad behavior. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I Let thought it, it was ironic. My last interaction with him was, go away, and oh. he's gone. Yeah, well, <laughs> Sorry. So you can't have a G- Studio Ghibli film without cute little spirit creatures. Um, I like the little forest spirits. I like that they're children, you know, kind of innocence of the forest kind of thing. And we get some cool scenes because um, Ashitaka has taken upon himself to rescue these wounded soldiers or r- wounded dudes because there aren't a lot of male soldiers in, in Irontown besides uh, the big pushover dude with the giant samurai sword. I've noticed that Miyazaki has literally mastered the art of 2D cinematography and composition. Like, he is totally in control of the image, and, and rightly so. He redid 80,000 drawings in this film. But I, one iconic scene that I really like is the, the zoom in through the forest. Everything's super quiet. You know, slow zoom in mm-hmm. until we see deer, and then we see not a deer, but the grand forest god spirit thingy, which is beautiful and creepy at the same time. It's very, very Miyazaki. And... um you know, after that, you know, uh, we get to Iron Town, which is this stark contrast to the forest, and we are introduced to Lady Eboshi, who is personally my favorite out of all of them. Um, throughout Miyazaki's interviews uh, and all of the material that I read, he keeps referring to her as like the representation of the woman of the 21st century because she is very headstrong and she is very much her own person. And, you know, she, yes, there is a higher power that she does answer to, but she has her business, which is iron town. She makes iron, she makes weapons. Um, and, and I, I love the fact that she is the one that works with marginalized people, uh, like the ladies of the brothels and their husbands who are ox drivers, which again, there's a lot, a lot of information in the books about what that exactly means because they, those two groups, both the brothel ladies, obviously, and the ox drivers, uh, were very marginalized both in, uh, historical, um, or period set films, um, as well as in historical, uh, documentation. So I, I, I love the fact that she, she sort of straddles this, uh, both major themes, uh, that, 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 you know, the entire film focuses on, which is nature and making them dollar dollar bills, y'all. Making them dollar dollar bills. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, so yeah, definitely not good nor not totally good nor evil. And talk about a character who does not show her her true form or true spirit uh, when we first meet her. She's a very mysterious character. Also, um, art direction wise, she her character is uh, physically large. Like her character frame is tall and large. But you can see this um, a lot when you can see it the most when San has a showdown with Lady Iboshi right before Ashitaka comes in and stops the whole thing. 
she is a very like imposing figure, and that t- makes total sense that she's a, a vision of the, of the 21st century woman. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned the ladies of Irontown. I think they're hilarious. Yeah. All, sa- all sassy, sassy uh, hookers with a heart of gold, as it were. Um, I love the ensemble dialogue in, amongst the people of Irontown. I think it's awesome. It reminds me of Seven Samurai by Kurosawa. Actually, that was one of his biggest influences for for this entire film. Chuchi. I'm like so excited that you said that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and that film does exactly what he was actually trying to point out and not do. You know, uh, Seven Samurai has the samurai and the village people. Uh, this film deals with everyone else, but a lot of the context is, is derived from that film. That's crazy. Well, you know, like everybody takes from from Kurosawa, but um, but but definitely, I, especially the scene where um, Ashitaka is sitting and eating with the men of the village, and they're all they all have this banter, this like dialogue, and, and everything's very like very irreverent, you know. It reminds me exactly of that that scene in Seven Samurai where the dude is playing the lute or the the harp or whatever, and these guys are like just BSing in this pub. <laughs> and it, it reminded me exactly of it. Um, and I don't know why, but I freaking love the scene where Ashitaka tries his hand at working the giant bellows <laughs> at, at, and the ironworks, and all the ladies are, like, so thrilled to have, like, a useful man around. <laughs> They're like, whoa, <laughs> he's so cool. <laughs> See, that's a lesson to all men out there. If you just help around the house or just be a good boyfriend, uh, you know, the girls appreciate it. It's a big deal. What it's do we smooth. want? A girl worth fighting for. <laughs> but the ladies love a man in armor. Yeah, totally. Oh, also, uh, Lady Iboshi has this right-hand thug man, <laughs> Gonza. I think he's brilliant. Oh, he's totally like Soka from... Did I say his name? Sokka? Sokka. Oh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, everything about him is Sokka from The Last Airbender. He's just sort of like the goofy sidekick. He's hilarious. He has a little ponytail thing. Big obnoxious pushover that no one has respect for. Basically. He has he has like big guy syndrome. You know how some people have little guy syndrome? He has big guy syndrome. He he thinks he demands a lot of respect, but he gets none. Heaven bless him. Gosh, there's so <laughs> many characters in this movie. But we there have, really are. What a what a cast. But it's like all of them are memorable and all of them fit in the space that are needed for. And he was voiced by John DiMaggio with it, which I think was a was a obscure but a really effective move. He's uh, he voices Jake in Adventure Time, and he's also Bender on uh, on Futurama, my personal Ooh. favorite. And um, and I just think it's a good choice. I think Jada Pinkett Smith also did a, a voice in this film. Oh, oh guys, I, I think she was, <laughs> she was the Iron Town lady, right? The the head wife or whatever. She yeah, was like the, the head brothel lady. Yeah, yeah. Um, her voice was so off for me. Like the minute she spoke, I'm like, "Ooh, you sh- you don't belong in this universe. You are too like sassy of a woman." I I she took me out of the character. I thought it was horrible casting. Really removed me from the plot. And I just oof, like every time she talks, I'm like, "I no, not you again," because you don't match what you should be. <laughs> but did you guys feel that way? I really didn't feel that way, but I do love Tokyo's character because she like does not respect her husband at all. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't too bothered by her, but I was... D- okay, so <laughs> I've been watching Studio Ghibli films for a while. My first one was Kiki's Delivery Service, but that's beside the point. Classic. Um, 
I do kind of feel like in terms of character design, they sort of do recycle a lot of the same silhouettes and basic details of all of the characters. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which is it's totally okay, I think. Um, but it's just funny to note, you know, like I thought the old wise woman at the beginning of uh, Princess Mononoke looked a lot like old Sophie uh, from Howl's Moving Castle <laughs> or even the old lady from Kiki's Delivery Service um, or like the rice lady in Princess Mononoke also looked like Ursula from Kiki's Delivery Service. Everyone, everything is going to go back to Kiki's delivery service, but I just, I don't know. It, it kind of bothers me, but when you're watching it, when I'm watching it, it doesn't really bother me too much. But I just thought it'd be a nice little tangent. <laughs> it is a great tangent because Ashitaka does look a lot like Aku from Spirited Away. Yeah, exactly. You know, if Ashitaka had just turned into a dragon and and killed everyone that needed to be killed, this this film would have been over so quickly. <laughs> well, Aku's not really violent as a dragon. No, no, I guess he was the one who got attacked with all of the. With the evil paper. paper airplanes? Yeah, the evil paper airplanes. I'll have to go back to Miyazaki's book to like figure out all the symbolism in that film. Boy, that we should almost do a whole other episode with with you, Myra, and and get the get the get the the uh, the lowdown on what what everything means. Oh, I would love to. That, that's <laughs> that's the thickest one of them all. It's just so juicy. There's so many layers. I ugh, spend hours on that. You know, speaking of thick, and this is just my opinion, I think the movie could almost be divided into two films because it's just so long. Uh, the first film ending with Ashitaka leaving Iron Town with San after the duel with Iboshi. And what a ferocious duel. Like, San with a knife is, she is nuts. Watch out, people, out of her way. <laughs> and then the moment of uh, Gonza is like, you're never going to get past me, punk. And, uh, and Ashitaka just kind of walks past calmly and bends his sword around <laughs> with one hand. And Gonza's like, huh? Ghoul. <laughs> you know, you're talking about how this movie could be split into two films. It's I? Uh, if this were made today, you know, nearly 20 years, 15 years later, maybe it would be because there is a disturbing trend in, <laughs> in cinema today where they split unnecessarily movies into two parts, um, Most which disturbing. I have even heard recently that How to Train Your Dragon 3 potentially could be split into two parts and making it three and four. And I'm like, no, don't et move into animation. At <laughs> two DreamWorks. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's just lame. I mean, think if they had finished finished a uh, Mockingjay when Philip Seymour Hoffman was alive. Anyway, that's that's besides the point. Um, but it, it, it's totally the thing that they would totally. You're, you're totally right, Morgan. They would have really. They would have totally split it up into two. Well, except for this is Miyazaki, and he would have had the brains to say, uh, "No, we're just making it two two plus hours." That's, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. He would have. Yeah, he would have mailed like a severed hand to the distributors, being like, "No cuts." Anyway. Yeah, he would not have been okay with uh, any any Americanized you know cuts just for the sake of making more money. Yeah, totally. So finally, Ashitaka is is kind of he's like in with San. He almost didn't make it because as soon as he fell off that horse, that wolf came to chew on his head, which I think is funny for some reason. <laughs> and um, we're introduced to different, and he goes from the human world to the world of the forest. Like, yes, he did. He did get a glimpse of the forest god spirit guy thingy earlier in the film, but in this one, he he gets totally entrenched in the world of the forest. And so we're introduced to uh, the ape tribe. <laughs> uh, poor apes and poor pigs. They they don't really get it. Um, stubborn and er and ignorant. But it's probably because they're losing their powers because of the humans' influence. I like that cool relationship that 
the more powers the human gain, um, the the more hapless the forest gods become. It's really interesting. So. And, what are the different types of forest yeah, gods go that we're introduced to? Okay, so we've got the little forest spirits. I don't think they count as gods. And I don't know if the, even the apes count of go- as gods. They're just but the, the, the pigs seem like, like warfare gods because they don't really seem to have anything on their mind other than, uh, you know, destroy all humans and that warfare will solve all their problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the pig tribes, the boar tribes, sorry, boars, not pigs. I think their story is very tragic. Um, what's the name of the leader of the of the pit of the boars? The one that's alive? I don't remember. Oh, Otaku. There's no. too many names I can't remember. There, yeah. Otaku? Is it Otaku? Especially when they're mentioned once. Here we go. Uh, yeah, just call him Otaku. That sounds Japanese and legit. No, no, no. I'm not gonna. Oh, have, uh, taco. Now uh, it just sounds Spanish to me because it sounds like tacos. But oh, tacos. Me. Okay, here we go. Princess Mono, and that's all I need. Um, Princess Mono. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, ok- Okoto. Right. So Okoto is this giant elder boar, and um, he sees that Ashitaka is telling the truth that there is a curse, and that hatred will cause will make it worse and and eventually consume everyone. But his story is so tra- tragic because he's like, well, look, the humans have gained so much power that my my men or my soldiers are are stupid now. They they're mindless. All they all they have on their minds is is to kill the humans and and I don't care if we do die in this battle because we have this pride to to defend. And um, he seems less stubborn than the rest of the boars. You know, the boars are just like you know, kill the humans, kill the humans. And um, but uh, Okoto is is I don't know. I have deep respect for him, but he is a very tragic character. His story is is just kind of kind of crazy in the end but you know the pigs and their pride you know i guess that's that it's a it's a message in the film that warfare cannot solve all the problems you can't just be like well we're just going to stomp all over people who stomp on us you know i do love the mood uh before the battle with the boars you know before they're like totally routed i love the music like it's very tense you can hear like a steady drum that gets louder you know did you guys feel the same way i actually i Music is one of those things for me that um, it's like editing. Like, I don't really feel it until it's super intense and in my face. Um, I did notice a lot more of the mellower music in between that I enjoyed a lot. Um, But, yeah, yeah, music's just one of those things that, like, unless I'm focusing and I'm, like, really trying to dissect um, on a more technical aspect, I don't really – it doesn't really pop up for me. You know, I am – Kind of the same way. I really don't hear the music unless it's really good or it's multiple times that I've watched the film. But I must say, this movie, I don't necessarily referring to the scene that you're talking about, Mason, but the music overall, like, really struck me. And it was very creepy at times, almost horror-esque. And so that kind of, like, perked my ears up because those aren't traditional keys and notes that you hear in animated films too often. Um, But, yeah, as I was listening to this, watching this movie and listening to the soundtrack um, definitely stood out in a good, very, very good way. Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, the, the imagery of the pigs getting totally blown apart by the humans and their technology is just, it's sad. Even though the boars were dumb to just rush into battle like that because they knew, you know, it's a trap. But, man, it's just super sad, and the imagery is so striking. My gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's backtrack a bit, and let's talk about San and Ashitaka because as soon as San gets the chance, she wants to kill Ashitaka. 
She's just like the wolves. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and what stops her? You know, why should I kill you right now? Because I think you're beautiful. I can't, well, I can't, is, is that what he nice. says? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, typical anime girl. Oh, he likes me. Or are you like, I'm, I'm totally blown away. <laughs> oh, man. Um, that's, that's, that's not to say that San's character is weak. It's just obviously, it just obviously caught her off guard. And Ashitaka became a little more interesting to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, for some reason she has pity on him and, and goes and heals him. And then there's that cool moment of the, the forest spirit, some some crazy foreshadowing as Jigo is watching the whole thing and, and, and plotting the demise of the forest god. And then um, <laughs> I love um, I love the super awkward beef jerky kiss <laughs> oh. <laughs> when she realizes that he can't chew his food. It is very tender because he's he's totally touched by her sudden stroke of compassion for him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very powerful scene, but at the same time, it's just like, Ugh, easy, yeah. mama bird. She's feeding him, yeah, she's feeding him like a tiny baby bird. Oh, Cute. Gosh. And I think that's that's the only, and that's a significant scene, because that's like the only time when Ashitaka is truly vulnerable, you know? Mm-hmm. He's pretty capable in every other part of the film. Mm-hmm. What an well, archer. Except for when the rage curse takes over his body. That's a different kind of vulnerability. But uh, there, there is that one time I think he's riding um, the red elk and, and samurai come after him. He gets really angry and he starts, you know, using his bow and arrow and he, like, massacres their entire team. I, I like how he uh, shoots the one samurai's head off and then the other dude who was with him it just, like, turns back like, nope. <laughs> nope. <So awesome. laughs> I'm going back. So awkward uh, beef jerky kiss, and then we get some some crazy um, drama with Moro is is another tragic character who who has accepted the fact that she will not survive the wound inflicted by this newfound power of Iron Town, the the bullet in her uh, lodge in her chest, and uh, it's it's a very like it's very tough. It's very tough on Son because she realizes that her her mother, you know, figure is slowly dying and that she has to accept it. And so Son, I wouldn't call her naive, but she like, you know, she's not exactly a static character in this movie. She goes through a lot of growing and a lot of heartache herself, uh, which which factors into the ending between her and Ashitaka. But I I thought it, I liked the cool scene where where uh, Moro is like, you know what? I know that uh, Son likes you, but uh, you need to leave, because I don't like you, and if you come back, I'll kill you. You know, Nashitaka, bound by honor, has, has to leave. And uh, I like that concept, especially in, in uh, Japanese cinema. And then, when when Ashitaka wakes with, up in the morning, and, and you know, he, uh, he leaves, I don't think he realized just how crazy his day was about to get, because the samurai are attacking Iron Town. The Iron Town people are helpless because Lady Iboshi took a troop of warriors. Half of them are going to are uh, going to betray them, led by Jigo, the crazy monk. And they're going to go kill the forest god because the emperor wants his head or he won't buy the iron anymore. So everybody's in this like weird bondage of, of enterprise and you know and and uh, and stuff like that. And uh, it, it totally makes for a crazy finale for the film. And I won't even call it a finale because it lasts like an hour. And it starts with um, the, 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 the horrifying imagery of a wounded Okoto uh, being consumed by the demon. And uh, is it me or those little pigskin assassin dudes really creepy? They're like, oh, they're like the elephants really from Dumbo. They're like, they're like the trippy hallucinogenic sequence yeah. of Dumbo. Yeah. <laughs> We're boars. We're boars. 
for foreskins on parade. Here we come, clippity cloppity. They're here. They're there. <laughs> what will I do? What an unusual view. Oh, someone please make fan art of that. That's wonderful. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. It can have Ashitaka and, and San looking around, and, and the, little, <laughs> the little pig dudes are dancing around them. <laughs> I don't. I don't know why I find it so funny. <laughs> Anywho, and, and so um, Okoto, a uh, poor guy, is becoming consumed by the demon, and then uh, I don't know. He he tries to eat San, and so San is in you know she's she's up Poop Creek without a paddle, um, trapped as it were, and so everybody is kind of clashing in this huge finale. I love the poetic justice of Lady Iboshi getting her arm <laughs> gruesomely chopped off by. Uh, by the wolf. What did y'all think of that? That was awesome. <laughs> the, the, here's something. Here's something to do. Here's something to do. Go either um, either watch the DVD and go through the fr- go frame by frame of the scene of her arm getting bit, bitten off. As the it, Ashitaka, uh, not Ashitaka, Lady Iboshi is has this like smirk on her face. Like it is not a grimace of pain. It's almost like a smile. Because she immediately when it happens, she understands the cruel irony because she told her soldiers that even if he cut off the wolf's head, it can still bite, which I don't think is true in real life. But I'll just, you know, I'll just sip down that Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> her face is a smirk right after getting her arm bitten off. Like, it's kind of creepy how tough this lady is. And I just thought that was very powerful because Iboshi is a, is a very, she's a very tough old lady. Holy cow. Also, side note, I like how uh, back in Irontown they're talking about the Emperor, and the, the ladies are like, oh, that's nice, who's he? <laughs> <laughs> they, like, couldn't care less who the royalty is or who the Emperor is. Anyway, thoughts on the finale? Myra, Morgan, I'm talking too much. I know, but you're just so good at it. <laughs> Aren't I? Velvety voice, BYU Telefund. Myra, just can go. <laughs> just general thoughts in terms of the end. I, I don't know, I honestly... <sighs> Obviously, this is a, like a really important film for Ghibli and everyone involved, and it definitely gets to the heart of very many fans. Um, but unfortunately, uh, because of the length and because of so many themes that he's dealing with, which surprisingly I felt like he could he got away with so many more themes in Spirited Away than he did with this. Um, but there's just so much happening, and 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 then it's just so. He takes his time with everything and all of the uh, plot points and, and wrapping all of the stories up at the end that by the time it gets to the end, I tend to lose a little bit of interest. Um, like I mentioned before, I have a terrible memory. Um, so having so much information is is really hard for me to retain. And the last thing I really remember at this point being under pressure, so that, you know, can't me some slack here, <laughs> is... <laughs> is just the fact that, you know, um, Ashitaka and Mononoke and, and uh, San have that exchange where, you know, Ashitaka is like, yeah, dude, you know, I love you. I want to live with you, but I have to help out the humans. And San's like, well, you know, I can't go over there. So I guess this is what it's going to be, um, which I found really interesting. And I thought was really nice. And it sort of has, you know, this modern uh, look at relationships or what have you. Like, it's just a really interesting not even a solution, just like a temporary band-aid on what was happening between the two of them and, and um, you know, uh, taking a look at Ashitaka's honorable sense of wanting to just help everyone the best way he possibly could. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 
definitely a bittersweet ending. And uh, my last remarks on the on the climax of the film or like this whole second act is that it, it, things get weird. Things get really weird from the from the expression on the forest god's face when he gets shot to the weird goopy goop to um, you know, the, the concept of total destruction. You know, total trial by fire. Although we do get to see Jigo show off his uh, kung fu skills, which is which is cool. Um, I will I, uh, say one thing, though. Sorry, I will say one go thing. Go ahead. Go that, ahead. That, that, that was that was some of the that was the most impressive animation in the entire film. Was for me, anyways. Um, was when they were dealing with the uh, the forest spirit going in between the you know the elk shape and the full on crazy mode um, forest spirit. Um, it was yeah. really beautiful, like, and just that entire forest section too. Like when he could walk on water, and and the, you know you had the little patches of like I don't even know green islands hanging out in between the water. Like that was just really striking and really beautiful. And I love the symbolism that with every step, plants grow and then they die in turn. And the awesome, awesome, um, awesome, awesome moment when you realize that the forest spirit did not heal Okoto or Moro. He took their lives and ended their suffering. Yeah. So it's a very, very mature look on on the power of deity or the concept of deity that it is a that they are a they are givers, but also takers away. And that's all part of their wisdom as far as as far as deity goes. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Bravo. So crazy. So crazy. I, I'm like learning. I'm like I'm like Zen mode, philosophy mode during the, while we're recording this. <laughs> so I, I can't. But honestly, last word I can't think of on the on the climax. I can't think of a weirder ending to a Miyazaki film. <laughs> I can think of more disappointing endings. I can think of more fulfilling endings. But I cannot think of a more weirder ending, or at least uh, or at least climax to the film. True. Yeah. Like, like giant mobile castle. I can dig. You know, it was the scarecrow the whole time. <laughs> That's fine. You know, randomly figuring out it's my parents because of the because of the the, the ribbon on on their ear. That that's fine. But this is just crazy. And it's all because of beheading. There were so many beheadings. Oh my gosh, people! <laughs> everybody, everything's in chaos at the end of this movie. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, oh, but it, which brings me to my point on the ending ending of the film, the resolution or or quote unquote resolution of the film. I think it was I think I think the ending ending of the film was very disappointing and I will tell you why. I was put off by Lady Iboshi's ending. My gosh, she got her arm torn off, but somehow she survives. And the first thing she first thing she says at the end of the film is, "Oh, we're going to rebuild a better town." So she so she's just going to go back and level the forest again, which magically returned. Like I was totally I was I was totally prepared to accept the fact that nature had been so violated in this movie and, and everything was so far gone that there was no healing for the forest. Mankind totally screwed it up. The forest gods screwed it up because of their arrogance. I'm getting all emotional here. And why did the, why did the forest have to come back magically? Can I, I ruin the whole thing for you? Please ruin it because I need, I need, I need enlightenment here. My response. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Studio Ghibli, for, yeah, and I think about, I talk about the studio in general as a whole because that's sort of how you have to take a look at all of the films. You have to take a look at them, what they represent um, at each 
section of like their history, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but Stereo Ghibli as a whole has always represented and has been known for, you know, being ecological friendly films where they always discuss, you know, the environment and, you know, how we as humans either hurt it or are trying to figure out our relationship with nature. And and that is something that Miyazaki um, has sort of fought against or tried to figure out throughout the years. So in the beginning, he starts out really strong being for the environment, wanting to say, you know, we as humans have destroyed it and we need to put it back together. We need to realize the error of our ways. Yeah. When it comes to this film, um, he's matured this idea and he's realized that in his research and just in, in his everyday life because he has two homes. He has a home in, you know, the heart of Tokyo and he has a home um, in the outskirts in, in, in the wilderness. Uh, well, in the woods, whatever. The way he talks about it, he was just like, man, I'm like alone <laughs> up there and, and I just go about my day. I wash windows. Um, and, and so he has, he, he's able to look at nature from both perspectives, both from being up in nature and, and being alone and just cohabitating to also being in the city and, um, you know, wanting to take advantage of our modern age. Um, sure. uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> but why, do, why does the forest have to just magically return? You know, that I don't of, have an answer for. That I don't man, have an answer for. If mankind is supposed to rebuild, then... Uh, why? I remember my tangent now. Um, so I don't have an answer for why the forest has to magically rebuild. And it's not so much that the forest naturally is just going to go back to normal. It's it's that it's almost like our absence or uh, us learning as humans how to uh, cohabitate and literally share the space with nature and figure out what the balance needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, is is what he was aiming for. Yes, yeah. Iron Town is going to be rebuilt, but so is the forest, and it's about learning how to give and take. It's a lot of that give and take. Yeah. Um, so when he was looking at this film overall, it was it was he he didn't want people to see the forest or nature as this delicate little creature anymore. It's yeah. not something that we as humans have just you know completely destroyed. It's it's actually something that we we need things from nature. Um, but we also have to remember to give back in order to keep receiving those things. Um, and he yeah. goes a lot, like a lot, a lot of what's in the book uh, pertaining to Princess Mononoke and Turning Point actually has to do with those ideas, those ideas of, you know, how they as Japanese have um, leveled a lot of the forest or, you know, sort of forced nature to work with them so that they can make rice paddies or, um, you know, tea farms or what have you. Um, But also this idea that, you know, nature has also revolted against humans many a time. Um, So nature's not delicate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nature's not delicate, but, you know, we as humans are also not delicate. Um, So that's, that's, that's sort of thematically what he was trying to work with and put out there. All right. All right. Well, that clarifies a lot of it for me, but still, I, I just... It, there doesn't seem to be a, a time, except in the case of Ashitaka, when the humans really band together with the forest creatures and like, you know, harmony, harmony. Yeah, you're really you know? pulling out some old school references. <laughs> <laughs> the Little Mermaid TV show. High five. Awesome. Hey, high five, high five. Uh, I love. Like, Not with you, this, but with your reference. There's this, um, there's this, uh, there's this overall theme of hatred in the film. The humans and the gods both refuse to compromise uh, and learn to live with each other. I don't, I don't think they ever do. At the end of the film, the samurai hate Iboshi's people for some reason. 
Samurai are the only people who don't get redeemed in this movie. <laughs> are they <laughs> more noble than anyone else? You know, well, the, it's, it's the irony. Yeah. It's the, flipping the old uh, the old stereotype of the noble, honor-bound samurai on its head because uh, they, they, they blatantly attack old women in this movie. I saw it. Um, I think it, it's kind of like, hey, we need to stop living in the past of this, like, funky feudalism, colonialism, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't, I don't know. Are the samurai worse than Lady Eboshi? I think so, because they're a little more mindless. They don't have much of a conscience. But anyway, the samurai hate Eboshi's people. Eboshi's people hate San and her wolves. The pigs hate the humans, and the monkeys seem to hate everybody. Ashitaka is the only one who has any sense in this bunch, who isn't consumed by hatred, at least not by default. And so Ashitaka is probably my... Besides Jigo, (laughs) Ashitaka is my favorite character because uh, his purity makes him this very effective savior. In fact, I noticed that purity seems to be a common theme with heroes in Japanese lore or anime. I'm thinking most of uh, Goku from the Dragon Ball series. It's it's it's, it's dumb, but it, he is a symbol of purity. Um, Why is it dumb? Come on. It's not, because I, well, I don't want to be people like, oh, Dragon Ball Z is a real anime. Um, <laughs> what? Well, it is. I've never heard that. It's kind of the epitome of anime. It really is. Sometimes people roll their eyes when I talk about Dragon Ball Z, and I'm like, what? That's for different reasons. It's too mainstream. A bunch of uh, burly, blonde, half-naked men, you know, (laughs) grappling with each other. What's wrong with that? Anyway, um, to to where everyone questions. But anyway, back to Ashitaka. He's pure, and he wants to help everyone. He, he, He knows there can be a compromise, which causes people to, um, you know, say, uh, you know, stuff like, you know, just whose side is he on anyway, you know? Um, and also, the wolf tribe never seems to get over their hatred for mankind, you know, uh, evident in San's refusal to live with Ashitaka. And Ashitaka isn't like, okay, I'll go live with you. You seem cool. You know, he, he goes off and he he's kind of has this duty to help the hu- humankind re, uh, reveal, uh, uh, reheal. And by the way, I, I love Jigo's line. <laughs> At the end, he's pretty much like, you know what? F this. I give up. You guys are crazy. I'm gone. I'm not going to try this anymore. I'm like, yeah, good call, bro. Do not try to pull that stunt again and try to ruin everything. But uh, I guess in the like in the end, I just don't like how everyone in the film seems to be redeemed except for the people we're rooting for. Jigo gets to live besides being a jerk, you know, uh, despite being a jerk. Iboshi gets to live and she gets to tear down the forest again. So like I'm getting all worked up again, but that's just the, this, that's like the only problem I have with this film is the ending. Well, she doesn't. She doesn't get to tear down the forest again. I think she learns to cohabitate because if you if you remember one quote, I remember from this entire film. Ooh. I know. <laughs> it's gonna be big, guys. Get ready. Wait for it. It's from. I think it was the ox driver, and he says something like, "Whoa, the uh, spirit forest makes the trees." I didn't know that, or something like that. See, I'm oh, terrible that's at right. this. That's but he right. says something like that, and so there's a little bit of that realization. I think it's just a little bit of a it's a little bit of a seed into the audience consciousness that you know now they're aware, and it might change in the future. Okay, so maybe there'll be a more a little, and there's probably listeners who are like screaming at their speak stereos now, like, "Don't you get it, Mason?" Um, but uh, <laughs> okay, now I see because um, a little girl chant for you, a little a little uh, ego raptor. But anyway, um, now I see that uh, people. That the people in Irontown kind of understand that there is a symbiotic relationship. There is a circle of life, as it were. Yeah. Uh, because they tear down the trees to re- to build their buildings, but the 
they also have to have better respect for these forest gods, uh, for the spirit of nature, as it were, because you know they're the one that gives them the trees in the first place. So okay, that's that's kind of coming together. That's kind of <laughs> coming. Together. So in the end, frustrating ending for me. But that doesn't detract from this film because I, I really, really love it. Well, one of the reasons that the movie kind of loses steam for me um, is the ending. So this is kind of like what Myra was talking about. It's just there's so much that's piled on, and it, it's a lot to take in, especially at the very beginning. There's a lot of names. There's a lot of characters, a lot of situations, a lot of folklore that we're introduced to. And I think at just a point it becomes really overwhelming, and I just sort of lose interest. I'm not as focused as I should be. I'm sort of... You know, just taking it in yeah. rather than, you know, really in the moment, you know. I know when I was watching it this time, I was distracted during the end, which is the, probably the pivotal scene, but, um, you know, kind of playing words with friends on my phone at the same time. So, <laughs> And that's very disappointing because it is a really good movie, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and so, the, the ending was very abrupt. Yes. It was like, here's your head back. We're all fine now. <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. Well, that, yeah, yeah. I do like that there are bazooka toting people in this in this movie. I also think it's ironic that the Japanese were the first to develop gunpowder, but I mean whatever. I guess I guess the guns aren't a huge symbol in this movie. Hey, they realized, you know, this was a mistake. Also general general feeling of the movie is uh I like how there's a lot of unexplained like legendary magic stuff that we're just supposed to kind of accept, you know? Don't touch it. We have to perform this ritual, you know. It reminds me a lot of the the writing in the Last Unicorn. How there's just a bunch of magic stuff that we're just supposed to kind of sip down and accept, mm-hmm. you know. Which is crazy because uh, you know, Last Unicorn was produced by kind of a proto Studio Ghibli, as it were. Yeah. The studio that that studio eventually went on to be like Miyazaki's crew. Also, I keep seeing the uh, Last Unicorn graphic novel at, at Barnes and Noble. I really want to get it. Ooh, I bet it's really good. Yeah, it is pretty good. The the art is uh, oh, they expand they expand on the art. Well, you know, I flipped through it. You know, Goofus and you know Goofus and Gallant Gallant buys all his comic books before he reads them. <laughs> Goofus sits in the comic book store and he reads them and without paying for them. There has never been a truer. <laughs> Goofus sucks. He's like the original Beavis and Butthead, but just one guy. And very fifties. <laughs> very fifties. Goofus does not use proper table manners. Gallant always pays respect, respect to the, the patrons of his house. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so anyway, let's wrap this up because I'm I'm getting too emotional with how frustrating the ending was. Let's rate it, shall we? We shall. Okay, here we go. My rating. I'm gonna give it four stars because this ended up being my favorite Miyazaki film besides Spirited Away. To me, Spirited Away is perfect. You can never touch it. But uh, Princess Mononoke is is an epic, beautiful, beautiful art. As I said, Miyazaki is a master of his craft. The only problem I have is how some char- uh, how a few too many characters got redeemed in the end. There needed to be some blood, people. Well, there was blood. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was plenty of blood. You're right. You're right. Okay, so four stars. What do you say, Morgan? So I agree. I give this four stars. It's beautiful. The soundtrack was very interesting. I like the characters, and I like the themes that are presented in the movie. Um, it's different than anything you would find in American animation, for sure. You, it's, if something like this came out of an American studio, my, my jaw would, you know, hit the floor because it's just so uncommon. But and so for that reason, it's really refreshing especially how violent it is and, and the blood. I mean, that's kind of been a theme with our reviews recently. It was like, oh, smoking and gambling. <laughs> refreshing cool. how violent it is. <laughs> and the same thing with this. It's like violence. Ooh, we haven't seen much of that before. 
Um, so, yeah, I like it. It really kind of is drawn out a bit too much for me. I think maybe if it was a bit tighter of a plot, especially towards uh, cut some of the stuff in the middle to make a more streamlined ending, I would enjoy it more. Um, so for that reason, I give it four stars. All right, Myra. So generous. Let's hear, it. Let's oh. hear it, Myra. But you're like the super fan of Miyazaki, so I'm. I am. Are you, you going to do a two stars? No. I'm okay. I, okay. okay. I'm okay with okay, whatever. Just, just give us. Just give us your rating and why. We're going to be blown away. Just let us know. Well, okay. So here's here's the thing. First off, with me and ratings, I I I hate giving ratings. I don't believe in ratings. Just like I don't believe in grades. It doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> what? Everything must be categorized and 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 given a value, Myra. Don't you know that? No. <laughs> no, I don't believe in money. Like I'm, I'm in all seriousness. I don't believe in money. I use it, sure, but and that's an entire different discussion. Anyways, all right. Pokemon. Why didn't this come out earlier? <laughs> If it doesn't pertain to the film. Um, anyways. Hey, well, I guess this means we don't have to pay Myra for this episode, Morgan. <laughs> Wait, you were going to pay me? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, we pay all our guests, except we, for you. We pay oh. attention to them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, yeah, I, I don't I don't really believe in ratings. It, I Because I just, I believe there are two big uh, things that go into, that should go into a rating, but people don't really realize this. One is, there's a number uh, that you give a film or whatever it is you're taking a look at, and, and, and it's either completely objective, and you're looking at it as a work, you know, as a work of art or a work of whatever, and judging its quality. Then the second half is your emotional attachment to it and what it means to you and your nostalgia factor. <laughs> Those two things, they do not go hand in hand. They, they cannot go next to each other. I love Kiki's Delivery Service. It is my favorite film out of the Studio Ghibli series but I understand that it is not the one of the most quality. So that's, that, that's my reason behind having two numbers. My numbers are, for Princess Mononoke, uh, my objective number is a three and a half. And I'm being, okay. I'm, okay. I'm being generous. Okay. My, my personal feeling towards it is more like a 2.75, like two and three quarter. I don't... I don't think we've ever had a 2.75 star rating. You guys Do they are even not have graphics for that, like on the website? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's possible. No, yeah, I'm I'm extremely extremely rough on everything that I'm forced to rate. Like it just it, it I believe that the studios have a certain responsibility, which most of the time, especially Studio Ghibli, I feel Studio Ghibli does uh, fulfill a lot of the responsibilities, but. It just in terms of, you know, getting me to fall in love with this film, it didn't really do it for me. I, I, I think it's a great film and it's a great testament to um, their legacy and a lot of people love it and I respect them for that and I think they have solid reasons for it. Um, it is very important film because of its, you know, its relationship. It, it exposes our relationship with nature and all of the themes and it's beautiful, but personally, it just doesn't quite do it for me. Hmm. I, Very interesting. I, I love your opinions, and <laughs> that sounds like someone that sounds does. very demeaning. But I, <laughs> I love your opinions, but, <laughs> but. no way. As my old term. Just kidding. No, no. and I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs> I had to use it, you know. <laughs> Uh, that's the the episode title. Go away. Do you realize that they'll come <laughs> after you now, Myra? You'll be hunted no. by Miyazaki fans. <laughs> so no, I was gonna say um, I love like your analysis behind a rating and 
how you broke it down and how you really detach yourself from, you know, nostalgia factor and, you know, objective. Um, yeah, so I, I'm actually really, really surprised that, you know, as such a Studio Ghibli Miyazaki fan that you still are able to say detached, you know, even though I love the student and everything they do, this is what I gave it. And now I'm like, oh, I thought she would have been super excited to do this movie, but probably <laughs> secretly when I told you doing this one, you were like, ugh. It wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, I was just like, why this one? Um, <laughs> well, we'll bring you back on a, on Kiki's delivery service. How does that sound? That would be great because right at this point, I kind of feel like the general rotoscoping audience probably sees me as a girl who hates everything. <laughs> but you're the coolest person in the world. They don't know that. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> oh, oh, wait, no, I do love the Book of Life. People do know that. Okay, so not so bad. because we got uh, six voicemails. Five of them are reviews of Princess Mononoke. So let's go ahead and listen to the first one from Gemma. Hi, guys. It's Gemma, and I have to talk about Princess Mononoke. I don't know if you remember, but Princess Mononoke is so, so close to being my favorite Studio Ghibli film. But if I was judging the Ghibli films by which was the most well-made and the most influential, then Mononoke would absolutely be my number one, because this film, <laughs> it's just a masterpiece, no way round it. It's a work of art. If you could stick this film on a wall TV in an art gallery, people wouldn't question it. Every shot of this film is beautiful, even in its most graphic scenes. The score is magnificent. This is my favourite Joe Hisaishi score. It can go up against some of the best American film scores. And I reckon that if you played any of Joe Hisaishi's scores to a stranger, they wouldn't know it was from Japan. It's just that accessible. But the film's not all just pretty visuals and pretty audio. There is substance to go along with this style. It's such a mature and intricate story and message. All those naysayers who still believe animation is just for kids can have this film shoved right in front of their eyes and be proven wrong. In my opinion, if we're comparing it to Disney, then Princess Mononoke is Ghibli's Beauty and the Beast. And that's high praise. Hey, Rotoscopers. I'm Dylan Mentis from Massachusetts, and I'm a huge, huge fan of your podcast. I listen to your episodes over and over again, and I'm always waiting for a new one. Over the past year, I've been diving into the world of Miyazaki, and it's been awesome, which is why when I heard you guys were doing Princess Mononoke, I got super excited. Just a week ago, I picked up the DVD because so many people were telling me, no Studio Ghibli collection is complete without a Princess Mononoke. So obviously I had to go pick it up, and having seen it now, I completely understand why. It's magical, dark, brooding, spiritual, and some of the most beautiful animation a Miyazaki film can offer. I also love the common Miyazaki themes of 
Our relationship to nature and war. I love how everybody is asking the main character, well, what side are you on? What side is he on? Is he on the side of the humans, nature? He just wants peace with everybody. He just wants no hate. And I love how the movie shows that hate can lead to destruction and despair, and we just don't need it. I would like to end with thanking you guys for this podcast. Honestly, people in my life aren't that excited about animation half the time, so it's nice to have people who I know are just as excited about me about these things, and it's nice to have an outlet and hear discussions in detail about these things where many people probably would just be bored of me. So, thank you. Hi, Rotoscopers. It's me, Frank. Uh, just here, leaving my first voicemail. Just wanted to say how much I enjoyed your guys' podcast. So, as far as my question about Princess Mononoke, did you were you guys just surprised by the amount of violence and blood in the movie? I know this is anime, which is a lot different from Western animation, but I never considered Miyazaki to be that type of director that shows that amount of violence and blood. Anyway, just wanted to get you guys' opinion. Love the podcast. Thanks. Okay, what do you guys feel about the violence? Shocked by the violence? Violence. Uh, I did think it was uh, crazy that a Disney distributed um, animated film would have so much violence. Um, I mean, I have seen animes that that have, you know, it, the violence in this film wasn't gratuitous. It was graphic and it was shocking. Um, but it wasn't like it wasn't anything like Kill Bill. But uh, yeah, I, I did think it was weird for like a Miramax distributed, um, you know, film that Disney attached its name to. So yes, I did, I, I did think it was weird, but I guess it served. It had to have served a purpose at some point, right? Right. I definitely think it did. Um, I I actually don't feel that. Um, taken aback by the violence as some of you guys might have felt i actually feel it's kind of appropriate and i think i i think like i was talking about responsibility and how studio ghibli takes that very seriously and um it was mentioned in the articles but it's just something that i've sort of observed in their repertoire which is the fact that you know they don't they 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 don't um they don't treat their audience um, as if they can't handle certain things. Like, they, they think their audience is mature enough, at least, you know, um, intellectually. Uh, whether they're talking to directly to children or teenagers or adults, they feel like they can handle certain things. This film in particular was um, originally, he didn't, when he was making it, he didn't originally have a um, specific uh, demographic he was going after, and it was only till later that he was like, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, middle school children or older would probably be more comfortable with it versus, you know, children, children, um, 10 and under, let's say. Um, but I think I think he 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 thinks his audience can take it. And I, don't, I definitely don't think that this film doesn't go too far with the violence. I don't think it steps over that invisible line that um, a lot of people would, would take offense to. But that's that's my personal take on the violence in this film. Hi, Rotoscopers. This is Eric Faulkner. I've got one question about Princess Mononoke. Where's the Blu-ray? Yes. It's coming out this year, isn't it? I don't know. Oh, Hopefully. Man. Can you yeah, think I of think the can you think of the screen captures from that movie? Oh, <laughs> so yes, 
Uh, where is the Blu-ray? I just went to blue-ray.com, and it doesn't seem to even have any record that it's coming out yet. But my rest is coming out later, so I'm going to hold her to that. Oh, man. Really? I thought I thought there was an article that maybe that was a different one. Uh, no, no, don't hold me to it. Don't hold me to it. Wishful thinking. Now I have to look up all my articles. <laughs> I did look up the Princess Mononoke thing. I guess what had happened was... I remembered an article for a Blu-ray release in Japan, which is, um, I think it was supposed to happen last year. So you can definitely get the Japanese version. And I know they do have um, the Japanese versions in uh, like the Barnes and Nobles or whatever your local stores. But um, for American release, yeah, maybe not so much. (laughs) Okay, so now we have two more voicemails that are not related to uh, the film, but they're just fun. So first one's from... Oh, this this guy? The first one's from... We'll keep it a surprise. Well, hi there, Scopers. This is uh, Hank Hill, Strickland Propane. I just wanted to thank you for mentioning my dog, Ladybird, on your recent internet radio program. She's a real sweet dog, I tell you what. Bull! Dang it, Bobby, take that wig off. Oh, look what you made me record, son. Oh, I gotta go, Rotoscopers. Yo, man, tell you what, man, that dango all dogs go to heaven show with a great chahi and the dango leechy goes, ghost on that fleas, man, and the dango big alligator shows up and goes, let's make music together. <laughs> it's real funny, man. Um, so, yeah, I think you guys are amazing, and I love your website, and I love your videos, and I, I love everything of... I love everything of the rotoscopers. Yeah, and that's it. Oh, thank you, Yuri. We we love getting voicemails. Glad you really like the show. And thanks to everybody uh, above who, like Dylan and, and Frank, who were talking about and giving compliments about the show. It totally makes my day to hear people say that, you know, they feel like they have, not feel, but they have animation friends that they can relate to and they can talk to animation about and we can all you know, make music together. Oh, that sounds, that was so wrong. Um, <laughs> I was saying that because of the uh, Paul Dogs Go to Heaven. Shut her, shut her off, shut her <laughs> off, shut her off. Okay, let me see. <laughs> I'm really glad that we have animation friends in our podcast community and on the website that we all get together because, trust me, people don't understand us. So thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's great to commiserate together as animation fans that no one understands. Um, let me just say that we have the best fan base ever. Like, honestly, I love our fans. Like, on the website, you can always count on, on like, sometimes we have, like, tons of comments. Uh, ex- example A being uh, all of Myra's articles. Um, <clears throat> but uh, for the most part, all the discussion on the site is so respectable and uh, respectful and uh, very decent. And um, I just love it. I love being part of this. I never thought when we recorded on Beauty and the Beast that um, we would have a... Uh, a community kind of to, to discuss these animated films. And so I think it's really special. And, and uh, Yuri, we love you too. We love you back. Your honorary fan of the day. Okay. So we have three emails today. Um, Two are Princess Mononoke reviews, and another one are thoughts from All Dogs Go to Heaven. So the first one 
is from Gemma. So this is the same Gemma who just sent us a voicemail. She was so excited. She already, I was talking to her earlier, she'd already written this long uh, review. So I'm excited to read it. You have to read it in a British accent. Hi, guys. I know I've already sent a voicemail, but I'm sorry. I just have to talk about Princess Mononoke. Wow, you're good. (laughs) I love Gemma's accent. Ten points for Slytherin. (laughs) So you don't have to read this out because it's long. Well, we're doing it anyway because we love you. It is really a special movie. It's so uh, it's unbelievable how much ambition and hard work was put into it. This was Miyazaki's baby. He invested so much into this movie. I'm pretty sure he invested himself a lot in his other films, too. But because this one feels much larger and more epic, there's a lot more passion put into it. And it shows on the screen. Coupled with the fact that Miyazaki looked over every frame and redrew half of the entire film himself. It almost reminds me of how invested Walt Disney was in making Snow White. He was so intent and obsessed with the project, it had to be perfect. Well, nothing can be perfect, but Mononoke came close. Mononoke is also special because it's an end of an era for Ghibli. It's the last traditionally hand-painted film they made before we get the marriage of traditional animation with digital coloring of the Ghibli films and and anime in general today. So it looks and feels old-fashioned, in a good way, almost like how The Little Mermaid looks before Disney started using the cat system. But Princess Mononoke is still a hybrid of traditional and digital animation, and Ghibli's first use of CGI. It's barely noticeable. I can hardly notice it, but it's still an interesting note. I've really gotten into anime this year, and I've seen all the Ghibli films. This is the one film that I don't feel bad watching with the dub, because the dub is considered one of the best dubs ever made for an anime. Neil Gaiman gets everything across where another writer wouldn't. And there's rarely any moments where added unnecessary dialogue where there would be silence in the original, which happens quite a bit in Disney dubs for Ghibli. The voice acting is great, too. I don't see a problem with anyone. And unpopular opinion, I really like Claire Danes as Sam. Yeah, the general opinion is no one likes Claire Danes as Sam. She really gets the aggression across and plays Sam in a more immature character than the original. So I feel a lot better watching the dub because it's so faithful. And an original Moro is voiced by a guy, and it's weird. I'd also like to add there's a three-part documentary series on YouTube on the making of Princess Mononoke. I've yet to see it all because it's roughly six hours long altogether. Hopefully it won't be taken down before I get to finish. Here's the link. I'm looking forward to hearing the episode and keep up the great work. Thanks, Gemma. This next email is from Suzanne. She says, Hi, Rotoscopers. As you know, I'm a big fan of everything you do, and I'm very, very happy that you listened to my many requests for another Ghibli movie episode. Yay! Well, Suzanne, this is the only, that's the only reason why we even did this episode, is because you suggested it. <laughs> I love Princess Mononoke, she says. The music, the story, the visuals, the themes, the characters. It's a masterpiece. Every time I watch the intro, hear the narrator's voice, and see the mist above the forest, I get goosebumps. I just love how Ghibli films depict nature it's so beautiful and mystical typically ghibli none of the characters are just good or just evil even though i love disney and pixar i have to say that no western animated movie has yet reached the depth and believability of ghibli's characters and there are especially strong female characters even though the focus of the film is not a love story the only reason that it's not among my top favorite ghibli movies is that it gets really crazy and violent towards the end it fits with the story. In the end, it is a war between humans and nature. It has to be dramatic. It is not something I want to watch all the time. But on another note, I do want to listen to the soundtrack all the time. One of Ghibli's best. So thanks again for reviewing this movie, and I can't wait to listen to the podcast. Please, please, please also review My Neighbor Totoro, Whisper of the Heart. I promise it's better than its title. It's really good. She says, and Kiki's Delivery Service. Keep up the fantastic work, Suzanne. I am all over those three titles. Whisper of the Heart is actually really, really good. I agree with her and totally underrated. 
Sheesh, I've never even heard it. Heard of it. Well, you know, if you lived in a tiny little place called Manhattan, Brooklyn, New York, you'd uh, you'd get to see them at the uh, annual Studio Ghibli Festival at the uh, IFC Theater. Just throwing that out there, people. Ooh, fancy. <laughs> <laughs> so this next one comes from Chris, um, and it's in regards to All Dogs Go to Heaven. Um, Hi, Rotoscopers. I was 12 when this film came out. I sort of knew what Mardi Gras was and the setting of the film itself, which I suppose didn't confuse me as much as I sort of wondered... What kind of world was this where dogs had the seedy underbelly separate from humanity to do their wills in? Certainly far more detailed than what I might get out of a Disney film previous. It's true how this film got plenty of flack back in its day, often for its darker scenario concerning the kidnapping, kidnapped girl being used by the dogs as a gambling device. I recall having read many reviews for the film back in 89 that painted it such a bad color in that respect. It's true there was a lot of things uh, either edited out or altered by the film um, by the time the film reached theaters. Once I recall is a killer trying to use a Flash Gordon subatomic ray gun that was originally going to be a real Tommy gun in the original script, and it was animated that way before they had to change the animation after a test screening. At least we get a gun at all. And while some have stated the word stupid was uttered in the film, I only recall Carface. Uh, call his subordinates morons, I'm surrounded by morons. Well, it is true they couldn't get Bert to promote this film at all, and what with Judith Barcy's death, that is kind of a letdown. Nothing was ever mentioned of it in its release. Dum de Louise was plucked to do a short piece that opened and closed the original VHS release, reminding viewers of the Boys and Girls Club America as some sort of consolidation, I suppose. Well, true, a lot of, of the artwork has been lost over time. Many pieces have popped up on eBay in recent years. I snapped some pics of cells from the collection. I was glad to get for good uh, prices, including a studio Christmas card from after the production wrapped up. By the way, here's a quick, quick vid... <laughs> of the Sullivan Bluth uh, Studios from around 1988, and he posts that link, and he says, thanks again, Chris. Okay, thank you so much for your review, Chris. I loved hearing your thoughts, and holy cow, the fact that you have own cells from this movie, like, makes me just really, really jealous of you, because, you know, like we talked about, there is nearly nothing of this film available, so the fact that you own some is, is pretty special and exciting, and now I'm going to have to definitely check out eBay Okay, before we go, we want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the Animation Addicts podcast, and especially our special guests. Myra for joining us and, and for contributing her amazing knowledge of Studio Ghibli and her somewhat occasionally um, controversial opinions, which we love. Well, it was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. I hope my information thoughts were insightful as well as entertaining. You have to have both. Um, but it was it was great being here. I'm so glad you guys had me on. You are welcome. I'm glad you could join us. Okay, so when you're tweeting about this episode on Twitter, make sure to use the hashtag AnimAddicts, and uh, use the hashtag GoAway also, so that way we know that you got to the very end of the episode, and double points if you use them together. Um, for show notes, make sure to go to roastcovers.com slash 69. You can also find us on Hypable and Animated Views. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also Stitcher Radio, and anywhere good podcasts are found. 
Uh, be sure to leave us a review in iTunes if you haven't already. We love getting reviews, and they really help uh, more than you know. If you want to have your voice heard on the show, be sure to send us a voicemail at, at rotoscopers.com slash voicemail, or you can call in at 406-646-6575. Those last four numbers stand for Roto. All right, so our next episode is going to be Tarzan, because by the time this episode is released, it will be a special birthday present from the Rotoscopers to Mason for his birthday. This is the episode that he wanted to do, so happy birthday, Mason, prematurely. Aww. <laughs> So get your voicemails ready for that because it's going to be awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been a stellar episode having Myra on the show. Uh, we were we we're just tickled to have her on the podcast today and definitely brought uh, some awesome content to the show. So thank you for being here, Myra. Also, Myra mentioned the uh, Miyazaki like, documentary biography books, which are Starting Point and Turning Point. And so if... Uh, what follows is an excellent way to support the podcast, and that is through our Amazon affiliate link. So we're going to set up some links uh, in the show notes to go through our Amazon affiliate link and check out these books. Uh, they will be Amazon.com slash starting point and Amazon.com slash turning point. What's going to happen is you will be able to shop for these books, check them out on Amazon while supporting the podcast because it goes to our Amazon affiliate link. You can't lose. Um, so, uh, so check out those links when this episode comes up, and you can find us at our individual Twitter locations, uh, Morgan Straddling, at Morgan Straddling. Uh, you can find me on uh, at Mason, SMTX, on Twitter. Also, uh, thisanimatedlife.blogspot.com. I've got some new stuff up, and I've also revamped the template of the website so it doesn't look like Barf. So check it out. And Myra's Twitter, lo- Twitter handle is at Amaya Sun Wizard, so at A Maya Sun Wizard, to find her on Twitter. And trust me, it's worth it to follow all these awesome people. Again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we love you guys, and we love animation. Until next time, we are the Rotoscopers. Ninety-three percent certified. Sorry, I just that. Hey, listen, this way. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk some distributed... Dr- di- gosh. Gosh. <laughs> gosh. Morgan. Sorry. Uh, Donde estamos? Um, the title. Way down here. La princesa um, Mononoke. Okay. In the fact that, you know, you are, a, you know, the customs of our... Country and our not our country, but um, you know the 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 customs of our organization. <laughs> what is it, guys? A clan? Clan? I was gonna say clan. Village organization. Village. 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 Okay. Yeah. I keep say I kept saying clan, but then I didn't actually say it. So it was just like <laughs> okay. Oh, what's the what's her mom? Wolf mom? God name? Mora Moan. <laughs> <laughs> Again with the names. <laughs> Mona, Mona. Um, God, I gotta go back to IMDb. I'm flipping through my book. <laughs> oh, I keep typing Spirited Away. Let's <laughs> uh, see. Princess. Mono. No. Okay. Mono, no, 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 no. Okay. Um, let's see. Moro. Moro. I only have one thing to say to you, Hank, and you, Boomhauer.
<clears throat> is that that my lawnmower has a watertight seal? I can mow my lawn in a hurricane. Can you mow your lawn in a hurricane, Bill? No. Can you love my... <laughs> Here's the deal, Hank, is that there's a conspiracy against the government. I mean, the government is the conspiracy. <laughs> okay, that was the best King of the Hill impression I've heard. That was impressive. And that was really good. That was the best Boomhauer I've heard, too. Um, he really brought, brought brought the inflections of Boomhauer's voice. What are you talking about? I thought it actually was Hank Hill and Boomhauer. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Way to ruin it. Right, it was. Oh! <laughs> Dang it, Father. That's like uh, my favorite. I just I quote that whenever something crappy happens or someone does something wrong. I'm like, Josh, oh, dang it, Father. <laughs> dang it, Bobby. What are you listening to? It's Radio Disney, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that episode? Anyway. Oh, that's awesome. Mike Josh. Yeah. Contributing her incredible uh, confrontational, not confrontational, uh, <laughs> to what I'm thinking of. Um,